0: Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the CBS World News from the morning of December 12, 1942. It includes updates on the war from Australia, China, London, Washington, and New York. The final sign off from this report is missing, but the rest of the news update does appear to be present. The World War II Radio Podcast is a brick fickle media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen be sure to visit our website at com slash podcasts, where you can find links to past episodes as well as other great information. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. CBS World News brings you the early morning reports of its correspondence at home and abroad. First, hear the highlights at 8 a.m. Eastern Wartime, Saturday, December 12th. Italy has been bombed at two vital points. The southern port of Naples has been hit for the second time, starting fires all along the waterfront. And Turin was raided during the night by home-based British bombers. Across the Mediterranean in northern Tunisia, the Allies are in a stronger defense line after retreating 14 miles. Now, here
1: is Warren Sweeney. Before going to Australia for the latest news from General MacArthur's headquarters, here's the latest report on the Russian winter offensive. Today's Soviet noon communique reports that the Red Army has captured a German first line of defense West of the enemy bastion of Rajev on the central front. Storming stout enemy hedgehog defenses in this key area, the Russians killed 800 more Nazi troops. 15 German blockhouses and 18 gun emplacements were destroyed. To the west, around voliki luki the Reds are continuing to cut into the German lines and isolate detachments which they wipe out one by one. Russian planes are active throughout the area. Seven enemy planes were shot down in the past 24 hours. Far to the southeast in Stalingrad city, The Soviets threw the enemy back from a fortified position and killed 300 Germans during the night. And now for the news from across the Pacific, we take you first, after a brief pause, to CBS Australia, George Morad reporting. I'm
2: swiftly running out on the Japanese garrison at Buna tonight, closing a month-long struggle, as heroic as it was hopeless. In the last 24 hours, has reported most of the enemy artillery and the attack have been silenced, opening the way for murderous low-level attacks from the sky. It seems clear there will be no surrender, but that the entire garrison, originally estimated at 3,000 men, will be sacrificed, totally. Observers expect the same weird and horrible climax as was experienced at Kabutu in the Solomon and two days ago at Gona Village where remnants of the defenders swept live grenades to their bodies or ran screaming into the face of machine gun fire. Again, it will be slow, tough going. Where the Guna pocket was essentially an Australian salient, the final assault on Guna will be largely an American job. Since it is our columns which closed in from the east and northeast jungle lands 22 days ago upon the main concentration of Japanese troops. Arrowed officers continue to Surprised at this fanatic, delayed struggle for a relatively unimportant beachhead. But it is obvious that the Japs are more perfect, and with better reasons. On the one hand, our task has been hard and casualty heavy because of unexpected fortifications, concrete pillboxes, perfectly protected machine gun men. But at the same time, the Japs expected to reinforce at will, counting on our lack of naval support. Instead, they faced a hostile umbrella of planes, nearly airtight over Buna and pretty effective as far as Gazmata and Caviar. There was only one confirmed case of reinforcement by three. Five other attacks were completely smashed by our fires. Reconnaissance men overlaid, the port and airstrip to the west. Crazy the enemy is feverishly digging trenches, building blockhouses from sand-filled oil pumps. Apparently, the Japs, as they demonstrated in the Solomon. Simply won't believe the Yanks are here to stay. They're ready to stake their whole Pacific conquest on this fringe of unimportant islands, and our boys are satisfied with this decision. As one high-ranking officer observed, right here and now we're going to give those foreign sos a sense of absolute security.
0: That was George Morad in Australia. For an account of the latest developments on the Chinese front, we take you now to Chungking.
2: new year may bring a new deal to the Chinese soldier. The Chinese soldier is the man, sometimes not much more than the boy, that doesn't get talked about very much. He is a very humble member of the human race, who, due to the war which the enemy forced on him five and a half years ago, has been cut off from his family ties and village friends. In many cases, he has been fed poorly. His arms and ammunition have been nothing to brag about. When the enemy brought in mechanized stuff against him, the Chinese soldier could do little but follow orders
1: and
0: We regret the signal from Chung King is not a broadcast quality. We take you now to CBS in New York.
1: For news at home, we take you to CBS Washington, John Purcell reporting. It's
0: difficult to talk about heroism at sea. You talk to men who have risked their lives and shown amazing courage under most difficult circumstances. They're usually inarticulate. Several of us reporters sat down yesterday with three seamen. They were dressed in civilian clothes. On each man's coat was displayed the Merchant Marine Distinguished Service Medal. They were all crew members of the tanker of Charles Richardson is tall. He's 27 and talks with a slow Texas drawl. He was working on the deck of the ship last March as she coursed through the night. A Nazi sub stuck her snout out of the water and the attack started. Shells came lobbing out of the darkness. For some time, a hail of explosive steel battered the ship from one end to the other. Richardson chipped in to aid the gun crew. Finally, the word was given to abandon ship. He dragged two members of the gun crew that were seriously wounded to the ship's rail, tossed them over, and dived in after them. One man he placed on his back. The other he told to cling to his neck and started swimming for a lifeboat. Sharks attacked the struggling trio. Richardson stuck, struck out with his knife. The one shark pulled the man off his back and made away with him. Richardson made the lifeboat with the other man. Arthur Lawman is a fireman. He's a little man, 60 years old. He comes from New York City. He stuck to his post in the bowels of the ship while pieces of steel fell all over the fire room. He was there to keep up steam. And all through the attack, he kept doing his job until ordered to his boat station. Thomas J. McTaggart is the chief engineer. His home is Medford, Massachusetts. He took over command of the ship after the captain and first mate had been killed. We didn't see Hawkins Fudsky. He was the first mate, killed in action. His wife, Dagny Futsky, received the award. Futsky was helping to lower a lifeboat when a shell burst on the ship's side and badly mangled his arm. His injury was extremely painful, but he continued to pull on the line that lowered the boat. Another shell killed him later. This is John Purcell in
1: Washington returning you to CBS New York. Now for news from across the Atlantic, we take you to CBS London, Paul Manning reporting.
2: Turin was again bombed by the Royal Air Force last night. The attack was light because soon after planes had crossed over straits, severe icing and heavy cloud formations were encountered. It was not until Turin was reached that gaps appeared in the clouds and permitted some degree of bombing accuracy. The Air Ministry say that three of the planes are missing. Several thousand families from Turin, Milan, and Genoa have now crossed the Alpine frontier into France, seeking safety from British bombs. The London Daily Express this morning say that many have had to trudge the 100 miles from Turin through snowbound passes because available trains continue to be sent back to the Brenner Pass to German factories. There were a few German planes over Britain last night. They crossed the channel and dropped high explosives at several points along the northeast coast. It was announced in London this morning that a national corporation had been formed by British shipbuilders to construct ships at derelict yards, about to be reopened under government sponsorship. This is nearly a final step in the rehabilitation of British ship construction, which suffered such a serious setback during the Depression years of the 30s. It was along the side that such yards as Palmers, judged to be about the finest shipyard in the world, became derelict. Once thousands of men turned out great Atlantic liners and powerful men of war, but a visit to Palmers today reveals nothing but warped shipways, steel cranes, and one empty brick machine shop. The town of Jarrell, where the workers lived, became in 1937 England's classic town of unemployment. War brought back some of the industry to Gerald and to the nearby city of Newcastle. Yet it's a full-scale boom that many now predict for this part of Northeast England. A report from Madrid served that a British twin-engine airplane made a forced landing on the beach near Avila, west of Gijon, on the Spanish north coast. The six members of the crew destroyed documents in the airplane. Several British and German planes have been forced down in the neutral countries of Spain and Portugal due to engine trouble this past month. When they land in Portugal, the Portuguese always profit. Dictator Salazar has a deal, acceptable to both Berlin and London, whereby he buys, at cut rates any British or German plane forced down in his country. He considers such aircraft a welcome addition to his own small air force. To replace German soldiers who have been sent to fill manpower gaps in the Russian front, girls' students are now members of anti-aircraft batteries. And now back to CBS, New York.
1: That was Paul Manning reporting from London. After beating off a two-pronged Nazi tank drive from Taborba toward Majaz El Bab. The Allies held a shorter but stronger line in Tunisia today, running 100 miles from a point west of Mater, past majez el to the southeast towards Pont-du-Foss. Advanced Allied units withdrew 20 miles from Dvorba to Majez-el-Bab, but it became obvious that it would be foolhardy to attempt to maintain an exposed position. British infantry, American tanks and mechanized units, and French artillery are cooperating smoothly, but there was no indication as to the exact position the Allied forces are holding. Following repulse of the twin German tank assault, which carried to within 2,000 yards of mejizel before it was hurled back with heavy losses, the situation was somewhat obscure, but the Allies were said to be holding commanding heights in this area. There is no denying the fact that the Germans still hold an advantage in the air, principally because they've been able to concentrate proportionately more planes to protect an area which is about one-tenth the size of the area the Allies must protect. An Allied spokesman declared that the Nazis were getting stronger and still are able to get enough ground, air, and tank reinforcements to attempt an offensive. Yesterday's action, he declared, means that the first Army commander, Lieutenant General Kenneth A. N. Anderson, cannot commit his forces to wage an offensive until they are strong enough to promise a reasonable chance for success. Giant German transport planes, some of which have been described as 6 motor ships with gliders in tow, have been used to carry Nazi reinforcements from the Seuss-Fox-Gabez area on the east coast inland toward No Man's Land, where Colonel Edson D. Raff's American parachutists are operating. Otherwise, the comparative lull in the Tunisian fighting continues today, with ground forces on both sides bogged down in the rain and mud. Activity at the front was limited to patrol forays, since the terrain is largely impassable. The bad weather likewise limited air activity, but Allied aircraft carried out raids on small enemy columns in the southern sector. American parachutists and French troops are harassing the enemy in this area, cutting their communications in swift, stabbing surprise sorties. And that is the latest news from the African battlefront, that is, from Tunisia. A British communique from Cairo, received within the hour, reports that RAF planes have attacked Axis tank and truck concentrations in the El Aguila area of the western Libyan desert. Meantime, other Allied planes have bombed Naples in the second big attack on the chief enemy base in southern Italy. Direct hits were scored on merchant vessels, and fires broke out along the entire waterfront. And that's the story from Cairo. belief is growing that the puppet Vichy government will form a French army to fight with the Nazis. Dispatches from various European sources report that Pierre Laval and his cabinet have been talking it over with Nazi officials and staff officers of the German army. Marshal Pétain is said to be in favor of a French army for the defense of continental France. But it's believed that Germany will allow a new French army only on condition that it fight against the United Nations. Certain Vichy extremists are reported anxious to send a French army to Russia to fight what the Axis line calls the bolshevik barbarians. Meantime, French police, under the guidance of the Gestapo, are reported to be making numerous arrests throughout France.